It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Daily Thunder. We're going through a five-part series, just the days of this week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, on the secrets of intimacy. And so basically what these would be in historic Christianity, the disciplines of the Christian faith. However, we are uh, giving some, a fresh face to them. We're giving some fresh terminology because there's a lot of different ways that these can be looked at. And sometimes when you just call them disciplines, you look at them as religious uh, activities, religious actions, instead of as devotional uh, ac- activities of relationship kindling. Our desire is to recognize as we enter into this advanced training that the relationship we have with God is something that is maintained not through religious duty, but through love, through the cultivation of adoration, of longing, appreciation. And so you spend time with someone you love because you love them, not because you have to. If I just spend time with my family because I have to, that is a miserable family life. I wanna spend time with my family because I desire to, and I want to say no to other things and say yes to that. And so the first thing we talked about was time. The next thing was study. And many of us, when we approach the word of God, we know we're supposed to study, we know we're supposed to have, but we oftentimes look at that as an academic pursuit to gain knowledge of God so that we can have correct theology and solid doctrine, which is meant to be a byproduct of love. Like, I know what color hair my wife has, not because I study it, it's because I study her. I study who she is, I want to know her, and the fact that I spend so much time with her, I could tell you what color hair she has, what color eyes she has. I could tell you, I could probably draw a little picture of her and it would be fairly accurate, but it's not because I'm making it an academic study to figure out all these details or all these factoids about my wife. It's because I love her, I just happen to know those things. But what I really want to know is who she is. I want to know her, and as Paul says, that I may know Christ, that I may know him. You see, we want to know Christ, not just know data and facts about him. And so when we study the word of God, we're actually studying to know Jesus, not just studying theology. Theology is a byproduct of studying Jesus. You get to know Jesus, you'll have good theology because he's the full expression of the Father. So, uh, you know, as we were going through yesterday, we dealt with remember, uh, which is the concept of meditation, typically, as far as biblical meditation in the disciplines. And meditation is a, uh, is a key function that many of us do not even know about. In, in modern Christianity, we've, because of transcendental meditation, the weird forms of meditation that have crept into the church, we almost back away from it because, like, oh, that sounds weird. But biblical meditation is actually uh, one of those central cogs of what causes us to worship in a genuine nature. Because when you meditate upon something, it is the form of remembering it. It is a form of memorializing, cherishing it, considering it, keeping it in mind, holding it before you. And so if you're meditating upon a scripture reference, for instance, you don't just read it once in the morning and go, oh, that's interesting. But then you take it with you throughout the day and you ponder it, you turn it over in your mind. I don't know if any of you have ever done that 
with a scripture where you just sort of unpack it and you do it from different, you differ, do it with different emphases, emphasize different words in the sentence. You go over it and over it and over it. And, I mean, amazing things can happen with that. I've, I've had times where I've, I've been going around in my prayer time. I, I'm going around. It's, I have a mile loop in my neighborhood. So when I say I'm going around in my prayer time, that's what I mean. And so I'm, I'm, I remember this one spot where I was and uh, I remember thinking, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong. So, be, so to me, I'm saying the same words over and over, but in my mind, I'm getting something. Now, this is something I've taught for years, right? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So it's, not, it's his might, not mine. It's, it's when I'm in him, that's where I find my strength. That's where the power is, is in him. I mean, that's what I teach all the time. But why is it that it sounds so profound as I'm unpacking this and I'm going over it, looking at it, holding up in the light and turning it? And then suddenly it's like, aha, I get it. And then I get home and I'm like, what was that that I, I, I saw? And so I want to take it back out and I want to see it again. Because the need to consider or to keep in mind, to hold on, to keep it as the frontlets of your eyes, on the back of your hand, you were, you're tying this, this truth there so that we could see it, we could behold it, we could cherish it. And so this one is going to build on that because as I was saying yesterday, when we meditate, it stirs and it incites something. When we behold the beauty of God, it actually leads us to worship God. Many of us attempt to worship before we behold. And as a result, our worship is rote. Our worship is lacking that sense of reality. Oh, we're, we're singing the songs. We're singing the right words, and the words are accurate and doctrinally correct, but we don't mean them. We're just saying them. And there's a, a danger that we always have, mainly because of you know, the, you, the church culture, culture that we've grown up in where we sort of enter into a church building and we start singing a song. We agree with the song, but it's almost like we're trying to get into the reality of it. Historic Christianity always has said, let's meditate upon the truth. Now, let's worship. So worship is supposed to follow seeing the glory of God. If you see a sunset, what does it do? It elicits something within you. And you're like, you praise it. You're like, that, that's beautiful. No one needs to tell you it's beautiful. You say it's beautiful because you saw it. And so when you see it, no one twists your arm to say, okay, stand up. We're going to say how beautiful the sunset is. That isn't how it works. It's supposed, you're supposed to see the sunset, and then it elicits praise. And that's why what I'm going to call the wow is actually meant to follow meditation, which follows study, which follows stillness. And so when you have that stillness in God's presence, when you are able, making yourself available to God to say, I want to see it, God, and then you go after it as a miner does for gold, and then when you see it and you bring it out into the light, what do you say? Wow, look at that gold. Okay, as opposed to starting with the gold <laughs> or starting with the wow and then exp saying, okay, guys, I saw some gold yesterday and it was really beautiful. Let's sing a song about it. And, uh, and it sparkled. It was really beautiful. Like, I, I bet it was. <laughs> In other words, you don't doubt the fact that it was. It's just that you didn't see it. So the guy leading with the guitar may have seen it, but did you see it? And that's the key. Wielding the wow. So this is typically in, in the Christian discipline is going to be understood as worship. But I'm going to ex exchange that out for something just to give a fresh face on it. 
not to change the definition, not to remove it from being worship, because that's what it is. It's worship. But it's the wow. That's, it's something in the soul. When you are truly worshiping something, that's what you're saying. You're saying, wow, wow. And so we want to learn how to wield that wow. We want to know how to discover that wow. We want to know how to use that wow in our life because it's critical. One of the things that we understand about intimacy with God is it actually transcends and transfers over into intimacy with our spouse, intimacy with our family. There's certain things that when I see Leslie and I see her beauty and I say, wow, it's very meaningful to her when I say, wow, you look beautiful. As opposed to if she were to come to me and say, you haven't said that I look beautiful, and then I go, you look beautiful. For some reason, that lacks uh, the, the mustard that would actually be meaningful to Leslie. The same is true with God. He could command us and say, hey, you're supposed to say that I'm wonderful. And so we're like, you are wonderful. And just there's something lacking in that. In other words, just as Paul in 1 Corinthians says that he is compelled to preach the gospel. What does that mean? And he says, if I... If I preach it of my own accord or my own desire, my own uh, you know, yearning, then I get a reward. But if I do it just out of a sense of duty, there's no reward in that. You see, you could worship out of a sense of duty or you could worship out of a desire. And there's two different ways. You get a reward and truly you are rewarding God when you do it out of desire. When you do what you do, not because you have to, not because your arm is twisted, but because it's your desire. Wielding the wow. So here's a great illustration of it. And I know if you've hung around Ellerslie or just hung around the body of Christ for any length of time, you know this story. There's multiple takes of it in Scripture from different angles. And being in Bethany, this is Mark 14, 3, and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble you her? She has wrought a good work on me. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. So there's something that we're seeing here, and I would say it's worship. We're seeing a woman who is declaring, wow. In fact, you know, since that word very precious, it says... An alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, which is this word pistikos, which is going to demonstrate the fact that this was an object of her faith. So she had had faith in this box of spikenard, but she has now seen something more deserving of her confidences than that spikenard. That spikenard is you know, worth a year's wages. It has, there's a lot of, that she can do to lean her life on that. If ever anything goes bad, then she has her spikenard. If she ever runs out of money, she has her spikenard. If she, you know, gets sick with this, well, spikenard is like this medicinal uh, type of tonic, too. And so, hey, I have my spikenard. And yet she sees something more valuable, more amazing, more incredible than her spikenard. And so what does she do? She worships. And how does she worship? She forsakes all that she has put her confidence in. She repents of it. And she believes the most sincere form of worship is going to be trust and faith that we put into our God. Do you see how worthy he is when you see how worthy he is, when you see how strong he is, when you see how able he is? Well, what do you do? You respond. You give. You trust. What is worship? Well, I'm going to give you at least a definition. There's, there's a lot of ways that you could express what worship is. In the Old Testament, 
you're going to see the, the word for worship is going to mean literally like prostrate on your face as a dog licks his master's hand. Okay, I mean, that's like, that's, that's worship in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Latreia, you're going to see that word used in Romans 12 when it's going to talk about offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto him. This is your reasonable act or service of worship. And so this idea of Latreia there is going to show it's only logical. That's what the word logikos, it's reasonable. It's logikos, logical. This is your reasonable, logical form of response to who this God is. If you really see who he is, then offer up your body, everything, not just your spikenard, everything goes. Do you see who he is? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. So what is worship? The laying down of all you are, the pouring out of all you have, the giving up of all that hinders your soul from gaining more and more of Jesus Christ. Worship is breaking open the perfumed spikenard of your life and body and reverently pouring it on the head and feet of your fair and beloved king. Worship is the act of proclaiming in attitude, in word, in song, in deed, and in body that the glory of, your, of God is your singular heart's desire and to see him exalted and adored as the driving passion of your life. One of my favorite mental pictures of worship outside of Mary and of Bethany is uh, Peter when he is being brought to his death. He is going to uh, be crucified. And he's even told he's going to be crucified. The reason he's going to be crucified is because he will not stop preaching about this Christ. He will not stop. He will not relent in his pursuit of winning lost for Christ. And so the punishment is they're going to treat him as they treated as they treated Christ. They're going to crucify him too. And his statement is I am unworthy to die in the form and manner of my Lord. So he is going to be crucified upside down. It, it, listen to this. Peter is going to choose a more painful death to honor and worship and adore his Lord. To me that is, I mean, the highest form of worship. To show honor, to show deference, I will experience even a greater pain. I mean, he's going to die already. And crucifixion's a hard death, but I will choose to be upside down so that I could honor him. Okay, that's a whole nother level. That's more than singing, guys. We're dealing with something at a whole nother level that I want us to at least open up and begin to unpack. An oatmeal day. So one of, we have had various strategies over the years with our kids of, you know, you know when you're dealing with a, a little child that needs to be a, awakened from their stupor of rebellion or a bad attitude. And so we've had various things. Uh, oatmeal has always been one of uh, our tactics. Uh, I remember Hudson had a, uh, I think he had a week of oatmeal breakfasts because he complained about a breakfast, and so he had oatmeal for the breakfast. But it was, it's not just oatmeal, because oatmeal isn't bad. It's unsweetened oatmeal. <laughs> it's bland. In other words, okay, if you're, if you're not going to appreciate that and you're going to complain, well, then you'll, you'll begin to appreciate it by not having flavor for a week, and guess what? You will really appreciate your oatmeal with uh, sweetener next time. And so an oatmeal day is is a tactic that we have used. We've had another one, it was called the sad spray. Uh, I don't know if you, ever, you guys have ever heard of our sad spray. We don't have it anymore, it'd be fun to bring, bring it out of the archives. But the sad spray was made up, it was some kind of concoction that Leslie came up with. And Leslie's like very sensitive to what's healthy and what's not, right? So she had a whole 
conglomeration of healthy stuff. You know, I don't know what was in it, but I know like Tabasco was probably in it. You had uh, echinacea of some kind in there. So it was probably very healthy. Like the kids got healthy the moment it got sprayed into their throat. But they dreaded the sad spray because it makes you sad. You know, instead of washing your mouth out with soap, it would be like, okay, well, let's get the sad spray. No, not the sad spray. <laughs> it was a great thing to begin to control. Recognize that how you use your tongue matters. You know, so my mom used soap growing up and washed my mouth out with soap, which was a very unpleasant experience. But we have a whole bunch of like the pump, uh, you know, squirt uh, hand, uh, hand soap type of stuff. And so it doesn't work as well for washing the mouth out as the bar of soap did growing up. And so now sad spray was invented. But an oatmeal day is along the same lines. It, it creates a, a great tremor in the heart of a child to have an oatmeal day in the Ludi house. Because what you do is you make a big pot of oatmeal to start out the day. And it's the same pot you use all day. In fact, it sits on the counter all day long. And if you've ever seen what happens to oatmeal throughout the day, is it sort of gums and goos and congeals and becomes this gelatinous blob where if you stick it on the counter, you could slide it across the counter. The whole thing is as one blob. And so what happens is you start out with your oatmeal without any sweetener, and it just sort of sits there in your bowl. And then you get it for a midday snack, too. And then you get it at lunch. And it, over and throughout the day, it gets more congealed <laughs> and cold, right? And so uh, by dinner time, what you have is a child who is crying out for mercy. It's very effective. And by the way, oatmeal's healthy, so it's like the sad spray. It really works well. So let me describe an oatmeal day for you because this is an exercise of something that we would understand in, in the Christian life is fasting. When you remove something from your life, it actually heightens your appreciation for it. And so as a result, sometimes we need to go through an activity that would heighten and re-energize our appreciation of things because that's what worship comes out from. It's, it's, it's the heightened awareness of who he is, of what he's done for us, of the sweetness of his life. So here's how an oatmeal day works. You only eat oatmeal, unsweetened in all its boring glory, all day long. For example, oatmeal breakfast, oatmeal midday snack, oatmeal lunch, oatmeal afternoon meal, oatmeal dinner, and if you can stomach it, oatmeal bedtime treat. <laughs> In fasting, the typical taste and savor of life, the notion is to cherish those good things which you have already been given in life and to stop begrudging that which you haven't yet grasped. So there's a lot of times things that we don't get. And so we have a tendency to complain about what we don't have instead of cherishing what we do have. There's nothing quite like an oatmeal day to begin to cherish the simple delights of normal food. And as a result, that is something you already have. It's very interesting when I've watched, uh, you know, I remember, well, I'm not going to say which child of mine went through this, but at the end of the day, there was an, I mean, he was crying. It was so miserable uh, to have another blob of oatmeal. And the next day, when he had his normal food, I mean, you have never seen a happier child in your life. And it was really interesting. Even he said that. He's like, I've never appreciated food like I do now. Uh, and there's something about that. It is a profound element in our life that if you've ever fasted, you know that, that same phenomenon. I remember fasting when I was a young Christian, so I was probably around 19, 20. Uh, it sounded like a date, 19 or 20. Uh, and I remember I was going to try and uh, fast for a week. That was my big uh, adventure. And I, my body type doesn't work well 
with fasting. Like some people actually like, this is very pleasurable. I have never felt pleasure in a fast in my entire life. I get very weak and dizzy very quick. And I think it's, you know, my fast metabolism makes it harder. And so around day two of my fast, I began to study cookbooks. That's what I would do. Instead of studying the Bible, I was very fascinated with how I was going to break my fast. And I was studying all these different options, different soups that I could have at 12 midnight. At the, I mean, this is literally how I spent my week. It was the most unprofitable week as far as what a fast is supposed to be. I didn't really understand fasting back then, so I, I just, I didn't handle it very well. I'm just going to tell you that way. And I, even at 12 midnight of the final day where I decided that would be when my fast was done, I had a pot of tomato soup sitting on the stove already heated up for 12 o'clock a.m. And when 12 o'clock clicked on my, on my clock, I started dishing out a bowl. In fact, I think I already had the bowl already dished out. And I started eating that. And I ate about seven bowls of tomato soup. Still to this day, I get a little queasy when I see tomato soup. <laughs> In other words, okay, that's, that's like Eric not truly getting the idea of fasting. But Oh boy, did it taste good. Whoa, when you remove the normal tastes from life, it, you start to cherish what you already have. Have you ever thought about what we already have because of the cross? Thought about what we have right now. You could think about what you don't have today. You could think about the trials and the tribulations that you have, the sufferings that you have, the things that, why do I have to go through this? But what about what you already have? You have a savior who has called and chosen you, who has set you apart and adopted you as his own, who has given you access unto his eternal glory. You have access unto the throne room of grace. There is no hand slap when you come boldly and enter in. He says, welcome, partake of all that I have, unlimited amounts of love, unlimited amounts of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Have at it. And you were complaining about what? You see, when we lose sight of what is real, it actually would do us good to have an oatmeal day. It would do us good to go through a little trials and, or to recognize someone else's trials and to say, wow, Lord, thank you. Because that's what worship really is. It's a gratitude. It is a thanksgiving. It is a wow. Every time you feel a craving, this is still talking about oatmeal day. Every time you feel a craving for pleasure, the idea is to give thanks for what you do possess. So when you're fasting, there's no better use of a fast than every time you feel a pang or a weakness or a little dizziness to thank God for the fact that he has given you food that others know not of. You have a resource of life, of truth, of hope that this world doesn't have, but you have it. And so though you feel weak right now, all it's doing is reminding you of what you do have in Christ. And by the way, a fast is just a temporal little blip on the map and you will be back to having those other pleasures. But guess what? Cherish this weakness that you are experiencing right now as a means to remind you. Exercising all day long the gratitude muscle in your soul and appreciating afresh the good things God has given you. So the word in the Old Testament is thanksgiving. And so thanksgiving is a big part of scripture. And even in the Hebrew culture, it was a big part there was a, a thanks offering. And the, the thank offering or the thanksgiving offering was a free will offering. It was not forced. That's what a free will offering is. It means it's of your own volition. It's of your own initiation. God doesn't force you to give a free will offering. That would counteract the whole idea. So a thanksgiving offering is going to be one 
that is offered because you have seen how good he is and you offer it up. And so even the idea of this thanksgiving, which is the word tauta, is this idea of lifting your arms. It's lifting up because you lift up your sacrifice unto him. But think about this. What do we do in praise? We lift up our hands. Isn't that interesting? It's a symbol of thanksgiving and what we understand is worship. Thank you. Wow, look at what you have done. Look at who you are. And that's actually where the idea even comes from, is this Hebrew word, tauda. Now, every Hebrew word has a Hebrew three-letter root. Okay, now I know you're looking at it, it looks like four, four letters. That's because that's, that's our way of saying it. But it's a three-letter root verb, uh, which is yada. So yada is the essence of tauda, okay, which is the word thanksgiving. But to understand thanksgiving, you need to know what makes it work. This is the physiology of the word. And it is one of the most odd words. There's a few words in the Hebrew that do this, that have two meanings simultaneously that contradict each other. And you could say, well, that, that's weird. Uh, well, think about the word in the English, raise. Have you ever studied the word raise? Raise could mean to raise up, or it also could mean to tear down. Did you know that? You spell it different when you, when you say to, to tear down. But to raise a building actually means to tear down a building. Whereas for most of us, we don't use the word very often. So it's, some of you are like, I've never heard that before. It, it's, it's real. And, or to raise up means to build it up. It's a similar concept here. And so we have in the Hebrew the word yada, which means to lift up and to throw down. Uh, excuse me, but how can you do both at the same time? Well... I'll go into that in just a second. It's actually profound. To lift praise, to throw down error. To lift hands in worship, which is the most common use of this, or to throw down all that would stand in the way. To lift up a sacrifice, which is what they would do with a thank, Thanksgiving offering, or to throw down all hesitation. To lift up one's voice, to throw down all reticence. You see, actually, when you are going to Raise your hands in worship. If any of you have ever done it for the first time, like if you come from a more conservative background and you didn't grow up around it, even if you come from a more charismatic background, which, you know, people are dancing around and waving flags, when you're young, you still have to make a choice somewhere along the line to enter into all the uh, activity, right? And I remember I, I wasn't a hand raiser, okay? I'm a more conservative character. I was in Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches growing up, and you know, I, I'd seen my hand raising, and you know, I'd seen it around. I'd seen some flags going uh, flying, but I wasn't one of those. Okay, I was different, I, and so maybe I might stick my hand out like this every now and then and pull it back in just in case someone might see it. And I remember I was at missionary school uh, down in Texas, and we were in a worship time, and I still don't even know who it was because I had my eyes closed at the time, and someone came up from around somewhere, and, and they came up to me and they whispered in my ear as I was worshiping. And they said, I, I just feel like God wants me to tell you something, Eric, and that is he wants you to lift your hands to him. And I had my eyes closed and I, I nodded, and then they left. I don't even know who it was still to this day, right? And I was thinking, God wants me to lift my hands. And I I'd thought about it many times because oh, most people around me were raising their hands, but I was so self-conscious have you ever had it where you're in worship and you think everyone's watching you? I'm not exactly sure. Just think about it. If, if all of us are thinking the same thing that everyone's watching us, who is everyone actually watching? <laughs> I have a hunch that we're watching ourselves more than people are watching us. Not that we haven't seen other people worship and overheard. You know, have you ever been singing where you, 
You're very conscious of the fact that, I wonder if they're hearing my voice right now. Boy, I'm sounding really good right now. And so you sing a little louder, maybe even lean in so that they can hear you. Or you're the opposite. You're like, I'm sounding so bad. And so you lean away <laughs> or you mutter a little lower. Why we do that in worship, it's such a weird thing. Who are we singing to? We're not singing for each other. We're singing to God, but we have a tendency to be very conscious of other people. That's what this word is, though. If you're going to lift your hands in worship, what are you also going to do? You're going to throw down all that would stand in the way. There is a blockade between me being free in worship. What is it? I don't know, but it's some kind of self-consciousness. It's some kind of fear of what you think, so I'm going to throw that down. And when I throw that down... I'm going to lift my hands up and say, I'm not letting that define me. I'm going to give thanks to God, and I don't care what the world thinks. You throw down and lift up simultaneous. Isn't that interesting? The same is true with almost every movement forward in our spiritual life. Did you know that as you move forward to be obedient and lift praise or to speak boldly in the name of Jesus, what are you having to do at the same time? You're having to throw down the reticence. There is something saying, don't do that, Eric. Don't do that. Oh, if you do that, this could happen. Shut up. You have to throw that down so that you can lift your voice. It's not just interesting that that word enunciates it. So this word that makes up the idea of thanksgiving, if you want to give thanksgiving, you need to throw down all that is hindering you from being bold to do it. Well, that's worship in a nutshell. Worship and praise is all about us being Christians. We see something the world doesn't see, and the world's mocking us. The world's saying, that's ridiculous. And then even when we enter into a church building, we feel inhibited. God, you deserve this. Now, that's why we practice our worship and our praise, not in congregational style, but in private. Because we're learning to just say, God, I'm doing this for you. Lead me to be able to do this for you on street corners if necessary. And that's where we have an inhibition which is why this word is so important. Lift up one's voice, throw down all reticence. Lift up a sacrifice, throw down all hesitation. Isn't that beautiful? So since there's two ways of utilizing this word yada, and some of you may have heard me say this in the past, but it's, it's my way of remembering it, is that when you are lifting up, that's the positive version. So that's yada, yay. And then you have the other one, which is throwing down, that which is hindering. That's yada, boo. Okay, because it's the same word, but you, it's like, which yada are you talking about, Eric? Are we throwing down or are we, are we lifting up? So yada yay will, will mean lift up. That, this is Eric's own creation, right? And yada boo means to throw down. When you see the wow, what do you do? Well, you're going to yada boo all that hinders, and you're going to yada yay Jesus Christ. The cross, isn't that, a, it's just fascinating. Think about Think about what a free will offering of thanksgiving is. It's free will. It's not done out of obligation. It's not done out of arm twisting, but it's lifted up to God because you see the value. Think about what the cross is. Jesus is going to be lifted up. Isn't that weird? He's going to be lifted up as a free will offering. He is. Of his own volition, he's going to say, take me. I mean, that's extraordinary. He's, his hands are even open like this in yada tauda position. That's incredible. It's the great yada yay. It's the great offering up of God Almighty. He's throwing down in that very movement of thanksgiving that you're going to see from Jesus Christ, that free will offering. What's he doing? He's throwing down the evil one. He's throwing down sin. He's throwing down the flesh. He's actually defeating our enemy at the same time 
he's offering himself. That is quite amazing. All in one picture called the cross, you see the ultimate picture of worship. So the lifting up of Jesus, the lifting up of the sacrifice, because that's what they would do. They would lift up the sacrifice. The lifting up of the righteous one. Ah, There it is. The free will offering of God. That is amazing. The cross, it's the great yadaboo. Everything is being thrown down. Everything that opposes our life is being destroyed. So it's the throwing down of the devil, the throwing down of the old man, the throwing down of sin. Oh, wow. All in one event. Isn't that interesting? Because if I were to say, is the cross a good thing or a bad thing? Well, <laughs> I guess it depends on which lens you have. The same with the word yada. So I, I thought yada meant to lift up. It, it does. Well, then how can it also mean to tear down? I thought the cross was a victory. Yes, it is. It's also a death. It's a destruction. It is a triumph over an enemy. You see, at this, the only way that that triumph has happened is that something is being thrown down. And so to lift up, you're lifting up and throwing down simultaneously, and that's the cross. The church, we are the large company of yada yayers. So our job is to lift high with a free will offering our praise, our worship, our gratitude, our thanksgiving. This is what we do. Those that see the cross lift up their lives as a sacrifice. Here, Lord, here's my life. Not just my praise, but here's my life. And we lift it up just as they used to lift up their sacrifices in the Old Testament to say, God, I've seen how good you are. Here's my lamb. Here's my, uh, here's my goat. Here's my bull. That would be hard to lift up a bull. Could you imagine? It's like, uh, Lift up their lives as a sacrifice of thanksgiving in proper response. But instead of lifting up a lamb, we're lifting up our own lives and saying, God, here I am. Use me. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto him. Share in the grand work of that amazing sacrifice as a result. Receive the powerful yada yay of Jesus inside of them in order that they might yada yay always in every, oh, that yada yah. Uh, Do you know, sorry, misspelled yay in that one, yada yah. In order that you might yada yay always in every situation from then on for all eternity. This is what defines us. How do you recognize a believer? Well, they are a yada yayer. They have seen the beauty of God and they worship. That's what we do. It's one of the chief hallmarks of us. And so if it is true that God has done this, what is our reasonable act? What is our reasonable response, our logikos? What is logical? Well, we give our lives to him. We serve, we worship. The church is also the large company of yada booers. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. This is powerful in light of this, guys. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's a yada boo movement. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So it's interesting, but we have a wrestling coach. Dave was the wrestling coach at uh, Windsor uh, High School for years. How many years did you do that? Uh, 28 years. 28 years. And so this is a wrestling uh, move. We are 
pulling down, casting down, pinning the enemy's movements. That's a, that's a yada movement, but it's a yada boo movement. So as, as we are worshiping our God, what are we also doing? We're throwing down. This is the work of Christ at the cross. And then we do the same. We offer our bodies as a sacrifice. We pick up our cross and we follow. And this is how we worship him. Take me, Lord Jesus. You are deserving. You are worthy. And in so doing, we are throwing down what the devil is doing in this earth. We are breaking down his strongholds. We are casting them down. We have weapons. Use those weapons. We have tools of worship. Our very body, our very lives, our very will consecrated unto God. We have tools and weapons to destroy what the enemy is trying to do in this earth. This is how we worship God. The wilderness of Tekoa. It was a, I don't know if that was last week, and I said I almost did a message called The Wilderness of Tekoa. That wasn't in Daily Thunder, so if you're uh, getting this via podcast, you're like, I don't remember that at all. However, we were going through a message uh, at the end of last week. It was our final message of the five-week training. And it was talking uh, about Jehoshaphat. And so if any of you were here, you'd remember the Jehoshaphat talk. But Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. He's one of the few kings that actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's a rare thing in the Bible. All the kings of Israel, I always put kings of Israel up here because they were the northern kingdoms, and then all the kings of Judah down here, in my mind. I don't know how other people's minds work. But all the kings of Israel were bad. Every single one of them, not one did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jehu started out well, and he did something that was right in the eyes of the Lord, and we're all like, really? Oh! And then he falls to pieces. Down in the uh, Judean line of kings, you have a handful. Uh, of course, David was, you know, yay. And th- but then Solomon even starts out yay and then sort of falls to pieces. And then it just goes downhill for a while. But you have some good ones. You have Asa, you have Hezekiah, you have Jehoshaphat. Yay. This story is so powerful. And so when I say the wilderness of Tekoa, that's a trigger for me. Because Jehoshaphat is surrounded by three armies. And he's weak. He doesn't have the ability to fight. So what does he do? He calls a fast. Now, that is the worst idea I can think of for a nation to do is get all its soldiers to not eat. When you're already weak, you're weaker than your enemy, and then you call a fast? Why are they doing that? Because Jehoshaphat knows that in their own strength they can't win this. The only way they could win this is if God kicks in. So they're going to deliberately declare their dependence. They call an oatmeal day in Judah. And what does it cause everyone to do? Heighten in their reality that they need God. So they call their women and children in to town. Everyone is there in Jerusalem and God speaks to them. In this state of dependence, in this state of oatmeal day, when they are weak and they're recognizing, God, you can do it. God, you must do it. And God speaks to them and he says, I will do it. You do not need to fight in this battle. You stand still and hold your position. I'll fight for you. And he does. And so what does Jehoshaphat do as the next thing? Because he believes the word of the Lord. He sets his Levites out in front of the army and they begin to sing. He goes into battle behind his singers. He sets praise. He sets worship. He sets thanksgiving out because God's going to do it. If you actually think If the enemy's stronger, you're not going to stick your singing in the front. 
you're going to stick your best warriors. Your own strength is going to be in the front. But they don't, they're not concerned about losing. They believe the word of God. And so they set their singers in front. I don't know how many of us have ever thought of doing that. The question is, do you believe the word of God? Do you believe that God is able to do what he says he will do? Because if you do, you might as well just start singing because he's going to win the battle. They set their singers in front. That's what I would like to exercise in our lives too. Let's begin to exercise the fact that God is who he says he is. If we need to fast, if we need to call an oatmeal day in our own life just to refresh our vision of who he is, to cherish what we do have in Jesus, but he has promised this battle does not belong to you guys. You didn't, you didn't think that you, you thought that you were the one that's going to live this thing? Oh, you're missing how it works. Stand still. Hold your position in Christ. He'll do the work. It's his Holy Spirit that enables us to win this battle. It's not our own, worship, our own religious duty. It's not our own efforts. It's his work. It's his efforts. And so the Christian life that best functions is the one who abides in his working. We still work. We still will do things, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us instead of our own duty, our own religious rigor. It is now his working in and through us, and we can be still in that. We can rest in that and just hold that position, and we can set our singers out in front of us. Paul and Silas are thrown into a prison. What do they do? They set their singers in front of them. And amazing things happen. What we've seen throughout history is that men and women who simply believe their God and do not fear their circumstances, but they see the beauty and the power of God, not the hardness of prison cell walls. They see God. Those prison cell walls can collapse. So I want us to freshly remember that today. Father, as we approach the wilderness of Tekoa, we want to remember that you have given us weapons of warfare that are not carnal but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And we want to lift our hands in praise and honor and worship of who you are. And we want to declare that we are believers. We trust that you are greater. We trust that you are greater than any of the current challenges we are facing, whether they be financial, whether they be physical. Lord, that you are not intimidated by a coronavirus. If this does not cause you to go and hide and to wear a mask. Lord Jesus, we declare that you are triumphant over all of these things, serpents, scorpions, plagues, ailments, financial shortfalls, relational challenges. They are all beneath your feet. And so, Lord Jesus, we bring them all to you. And we say, make us like the company of Jehoshaphat. May we follow our king into battle and set our singers at the front. You are deserving of our worship and our praise, Lord Jesus. May we see it afresh this morning, how good you are, how powerful you are. And may our singing and our living and our sacrifice flow out of that. May it be an action of love and adoration. It's in the precious name we pray. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. 
join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.